Assalamu alaikum. Quick disclaimer about this episode. This was recorded, I believe, back in 2013 when I was when I did a series on the assassins, which were the, I guess, a strike force of and of one of the many Ismaili sects in Persia. So this was a, uh, another part of, the, of their overall story, talking about the interaction between Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, who of course was the liberator of Jerusalem from the Crusaders, sometimes called Saladin. During his period of time, there are stories, though they are somewhat filled with legend, there are stories about his interaction with the Hashashin, or the assassins. So even though those stories are are probably only partially true, I still thought they were interesting, so I included them. But do understand that much of the what we know about the assassin in general is wrapped up in legend and folklore. So even this uh, story, which which discusses the interaction between Salahuddin and the assassins, honestly, I don't really know how true it is. But I thought it was a great story, and it is based in history, so we're going to include it anyway. But Allah knows best if it's really true. The second part, however, which includes the interaction between the, the assassins and the Mongols, that's pretty much true. There, that's, there's no legend in that one. So I hope you enjoy this part. It, it includes, this episode includes, uh, of course, Salahuddin and, this, and the assassins, a little bit about the Crusaders and the assassins, and finally the Mongols and the assassins. They're all roughly around the same period of time. And uh, I'm pretty sure I never released this episode. I created it initially to sell it, but at the time uh, I didn't really have the computer infrastructure to really get it all together and get it out there and sell and sell and sell it. And so uh, it's just been sitting on my hard drive for years. So um, I'm almost certain most of you have never heard this one before. But I hope you enjoy it, even though it was made years ago. I hope you enjoy it, and I believe it's a little bit less preachy than the last one, the last uh, bonus episode I put out. Let me know if you enjoy it, and uh, if you if you have any questions about it, of course, feel free to contact me. And hopefully by next week, inshallah, we will have more new episodes rolling out. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. What Rashiduddin Sinan is primarily known for is his conflict with the Crusaders and Salahuddin. We're going to discuss his dealings with two great Muslim warriors and rulers of the time, Salahuddin and Nuruddin Zengi. When it comes to the Crusades, a lot of Muslims think the Christians just came through the Middle East, kicked a lot of Muslim butt, conquered Jerusalem, and just sat there until Salahuddin came around. That is not what happened at all. There were a lot of Muslims trying to fight against the Crusaders, but for the most part, they only had limited success because they were too busy fighting each other at the same time. Salahuddin, he gets a lot of credit because he's the one who actually freed Jerusalem from the Crusaders, and he definitely deserves this credit. But there was another man named Nuruddin Zengi who paved the way for Salahuddin. I mean, literally, if it were not for Nuruddin, and I mean this literally, we probably would never even know who Salahuddin was. Now, very briefly, um, I'm going to tell you about 
the Crusades, because this really isn't about the Crusades, it's more or less about these two guys, Nuruddin Salahuddin and the assassins. But let me tell you first how we go from Nuruddin to Salahuddin. Now it's true, yes, the Crusaders, they came into the Muslim lands during a period of confusion when the assassins had killed the Seljuk Sultan and the empire, the empire was falling apart. The Crusaders, they took advantage of this situation and they shot through the Muslim lands like a bolt of lightning. Before the Muslims even knew what had happened, Jerusalem had been captured and there were a bunch of new Crusader kingdoms everywhere. Nuruddin was the governor of Mosul in modern-day Iraq and Aleppo in Syria under the authority of the caliph in Baghdad. But like we mentioned in other episodes, the caliphate was pretty weak at this time, and Nuruddin, he pretty much operated independently however he wanted to. When Nuruddin came into power in 1146, he put all of his focus on getting rid of the crusaders. What he really wanted to do, what he was really trying to do was unite the Muslim lands into one large force so they could march on the Christians. So he made deals, he traded land, he negotiated, he helped put down rebellions for other Muslim leaders just so they would owe him a favor and join him in his crusade against the crusaders. Basically, he did whatever he needed to do to try to unite the Muslims into one big alliance. And when he had himself a decent-sized alliance, he began smashing the crusader states all around him. I mean, this story is not about the crusades, really, so I don't want to spend too much time talking about them. But I want you to understand the situation that led up to Salahuddin's rise to power, which coincides with the whole discussion on the assassins. Nuruddin was the ruler of Aleppo, which is in modern-day Syria, and to his north was this huge crusader's territory called the county of Edessa. To the west of Nuruddin was another smaller piece of crusader territory called the Principality of Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. The city of Antioch itself was actually controlled by the Byzantines, and Antioch is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Just trying to draw a mental map for you so you can understand how everything works out. South of Antioch was another crusader state called the County of Tripoli. And this was in, uh, well, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was in modern-day Lebanon. And south of Tripoli was the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which was also controlled by the Crusaders. And further south from there was the Sinai Peninsula, which was part of Egypt and controlled by the Fatimid Empire. So this is how things stood in 1148 when Nuruddin became the governor of Aleppo. Now, over the next six years, he battled and negotiated and battled and made alliances and battled and signed treaties and battled and made Hajj until he conquered all of the Crusader territory in Turkey and a good chunk of Crusader territory in Syria. So in 1154, he was still trying to get at these uh, Crusaders, but the Muslim ruler in Damascus it was Damascus, was Damascus was not under Nuruddin's control. It was under control of another Muslim ruler. He wouldn't give Nuruddin permission to go through his territory in order to attack the crusaders in Jerusalem on the other side. The reason for this was that the ruler of Damascus, even though he was Muslim, 
he was also an ally of the Crusaders. So what did Nordin do? He waited until the time was right. And when it was, he overthrew that Muslim ruler and made Damascus his territory so he didn't need anyone's permission. Through all of this, the assassins made several attempts on Nuruddin's life, but they were never successful. Remember, the assassins would often hire their services out to the highest bidder, and with Nuruddin knocking over a whole bunch of crusader states, of course some of them, many of them, wanted him taken out the picture. It's prob- probably inevitable that a guy like Nuruddin would come into conflict with the Ismailis in Syria, and after they tried to kill him, Nuruddin sent a letter to Rashiduddin Sinan threatening to destroy the Ismailis. Now, listen to uh, Rashiduddin Sinan's response, quote, We have examined your letter in some and in detail, and have well appreciated the words and deeds with which it threatens us. Admire the fly buzzing at the ear of the elephant, and the gnat which is counted as an emblem of littleness. Already before you, other people have held a similar discourse, but we hurled destruction upon them. They had none to assist them. Do you mean to oppose the truth and uphold falsehood? They who act perversely shall know the fate which awaits them. As for your words, that you will cut off my head and tear my fortresses from the firm mountains which sustain them, know that these are delusive thoughts, vain imaginations, for the substance is not destroyed by the disparation of its accidents, neither is the soul dissolved by the maladies of the body. How wide the difference between strong and weak, between noble and vile. And in common and current proverb, it is said, is a goose to be threatened with being cast into the river? Prepare, therefore, a tunic against misfortune and a cloak against affliction, for evils of your own doing shall prevail against you. You shall feel convinced that they proceeded from yourself, that you were like the animal which scraped with his hoof till found it till found its death, and like him who cut off his nose with his own hand. Unquote. Nurdin was never able to launch that offensive against the Ismailis, but when it was all said and done, Nurdin he was able to establish one giant Muslim block in Syria that cut off the Crusader territories of Tripoli and Jerusalem to the south from the north, meaning that those territories to the south, that is Tripoli and Jerusalem, they couldn't get supplies or reinforcements from Europe except by sea. And that is what started the decline of the Crusaders' presence in the Middle East. It's important to know that it wasn't just Salahuddin coming through and knocking over Jerusalem. Nuruddin did a lot of work in unifying the Muslims and cutting off uh, the access the of the crusaders in Jerusalem to supplies and provisions coming from Europe. After, after capturing Damascus, Nuruddin, he had to deal with a couple of earthquakes in his territory. And he also had a very bad sickness that kept him uh, out of action for about a year. And after that, he began to he began uh, sending his trusted general, a guy named Shirko, who was uh, neither Arab nor Turkish. He was Turkish. He was actually Kurdish. All right, I'm sure you heard of the Kurds and everything in modern uh, news outlets and stuff like that. He really began to send his general Shirko to uh, basically lead warfare and stuff like that. And that's what's really amazing about this whole era. Uh, even though there were some serious Muslim defeats. When the Muslims were united, I mean, they were almost unstoppable. I mean, look at all the different ethnicities at work here. Nurdin was Turkish. Salahuddin was Kurdish. Nizam al-Mulk was Persian. 
Most of the people in these territories, however, they were Arab. Look at these men who were successful. I mean, they weren't fighting for the glory of the Turks or the glory of the Kurds. They were united and they were fighting for the glory of Islam. And that's what made them successful. Anyway, a few years after capturing Damascus, the Fatimid dynasty was going through some serious upheavals and turmoil. They're going through that uh, rough period period we mentioned in uh, the episodes about the assassins when they just couldn't seem to keep their caliph alive for long and several people were playing musical cheers with the throne. It'd be one caliph here, dead and gone within a couple of months. Another guy would be the caliph, he'd be dead and gone soon after that. Now, one of these uh, many players for the throne, uh, he was a former Fatimid minister. He came to Nur ad-Din asking for help after being exiled by a rival. Somebody else got the musical chair after him, I guess. So Nur ad-Din, he sent his general Shirka, the, the Kurdish guy, to help out. And Shirka took along his young nephew named Salahuddin, who was only about 20 years old at the time. After Shirka and Salahuddin, they went to war for the minister, helped him regain his power in Egypt. After they did all that, this guy turns against them and orders them to leave. He even called on the crusaders to come and help him force them to leave. So Shirka and Salahuddin were like, we didn't come here by ourselves, dude. We came here with an army. So Shirka and Salahuddin they turned their army against this minister who they came all the way from Syria to help. They turned, they, well, he turned against them first, but they turned their armies on him. They defeated him and all of his crusader allies, and they pretty much took over Egypt. The Fatimid dynasty was so weak by then that there was nothing anyone could do to stop it, and that was pretty much the end of the Fatimids. So by this time, Shirka was fairly old, so his nephew, Salahuddin, he eventually took over Egypt. And when he did, he went about returning Egypt to Sunni Islam. Remember, the rulers of Egypt, Egypt at this time, they were the Ismaili uh, Fatimids. But the regular people, for the most part, were the same faith they had been for centuries before. Mostly Muslim with a Christian minority. Now, let's go ahead and make the connection between Salahuddin and the assassins. Nur ad-Din died a few years after Salahuddin took over Egypt, and Nur ad-Din's son, Saifuddin, became the next ruler, but he was only about 11 years old. His advisor was a eunuch named Gumushtagin. I'm hoping I'm getting this right. Gumushtagin, and this Gumushtagin, this eunuch, was the real power behind the throne. Remember, Saifuddin was only 11 years old. The Crusaders, they saw that they saw Nuruddin's death and Saifuddin's youth as an opportunity to take back some of their old territory and immediately began preparing to invade Syria. Saifuddin, Nuruddin's son, he called for Salahuddin to come help and protect them. So Salahuddin, he rode from Egypt to Aleppo in Serbia with 700 horsemen, but when he arrived there, Saifuddin and his eunuch advisor, Gumushtagin, they all of a sudden became very suspicious of Salahuddin's intentions. And to a certain extent, they had a right to be because Salahuddin went about snatching up several smaller cities along the way that were once under Nuruddin's control, but they had broken off after his death. So 
it wasn't really too long before the friendly relations between Salahuddin and uh, Saifuddin in Aleppo and his eunuch advisor, Kamushtigan, eventually their relations broke down into open warfare. Now, the advisor, Kamushtigan, the eunuch, he went to the assassins and hired them to knock off Salahuddin. And the assassins made two attempts, two attempts on Salahuddin's life, and they failed both times. Salahuddin wound up capturing Aleppo eventually, and since the seat of Nuruddin's power was in Aleppo and Nuruddin ruled all of Syria, this made Salahuddin the ruler of Syria as well. In a way, it's amazing to see how Salahuddin rose to power so quickly by really just being in the right place at the right time, but also by being fearless. The Abbasid Caliph recognized Salahuddin as the ruler of Egypt and Syria, and that pretty much made everything official. Next, Salahuddin, he's turned his eyes on the assassins who had tried to kill him twice already. And so he led an army to Rashiduddin Sinan's castle in Masyaf, which is in the northeastern part of modern-day Syria, and laid siege on Rashiduddin Sinan's castle in Masyaf. Now, Rashiduddin Sinan, he was in the castle during the siege. Instead, he was camped out at a higher point of the mountain, looking down on the whole thing. There's lots of correspondence between Rashiduddin Sinan and Salahuddin. Some of it was threatening and saying things like, I'm going to kill you and your forces. You better surrender now. Some of it was actually more the lines of a real peace, like two people actually trying to come to some sort of terms of agreement. There are also quite a few stories about Salahuddin uh, trying to protect himself from the assassins and how close they got to killing him. I mean, they had already tried to kill him twice, so he was definitely paranoid by now. Here are the stories. One story says that he had several layers of protection around him and he had he so much he even had like gravel circled around his tent so that he can hear any footsteps approaching. You know, they had to crunch on the gravel and stuff like that. But despite all these layers of protection he had, an assassin still got through and was able to place a note by his head while he was sleeping. And this was like a, a not-so-veiled threat. So after that, this story says that Salahuddin made peace with the Ismailis. I don't know how true that story is, but just the way the story goes. Another story says that Rashiduddin Sinan, he came to meet with Salahuddin in his tent to try to negotiate peace. The only other people allowed in the tent were Salahuddin's two most trusted guards. So they're negotiating, but Salahuddin, he refuses to make peace with Rashiduddin Sinan. Rashiduddin Sinan, he continuously uh, talks and talks, and eventually the negotiations become kind of hostile and heated, and Rashiduddin threatens him. And Salahuddin, he just like laughs it off and basically challenges him, say, go ahead, do your words. What can you do? So Rashiduddin, he then makes one little gesture with his hands, and those two trusted guards who were in the tent with Salahuddin, they pull out their swords and point them at Salahuddin and tells Rashiduddin Sinan, just give us the order and we'll kill him. After that, according to this story, Salahuddin decided to make peace. I'm not sure I really believe either one of these stories. They really make Salahuddin kind of seem kind of wimpy. I don't know. To me, what most likely happened is that both Salahuddin 
and Rashiduddin Sinan, they recognized that they both had one common enemy, the Crusaders. Whatever story is true, what did happen is that Salahuddin did lift the siege on Masyaf, on the um, Ismaili castle in Masyaf, and he returned to Egypt. And later on, the Ismailis would join forces with him in battle against the Crusaders. And so from that point on, Rashiduddin Sinan and the Ismailis and um, Salahuddin, they pretty much kept friendly relations from that point on. Now let's go ahead and talk in a little bit more detail about how the Mongols conquered the Ismailis, how they actually defeated the Ismailis and the aftermath of all that. Now Genghis Khan, the king of the Mongols, he sent an envoy to the Khwarezmian Empire, which was one of those many dynasties that sprung up after, after the fall of the Seljuks. What's interesting is that, you know, the Mongols weren't even trying to conquer the Muslim lands at first. Genghis Khan's envoy was really just trying to establish trade routes and friendly ties with the uh, sultan of the area. Now, the sultan, he made the really stupid mistake of killing some of the Mongolian emissaries later on. And that one stupid act, that one dumb act, that would lead to the death of of millions of Muslims. After they killed Genghis, Genghis Khan's emissaries, the Mongols declared war on the Khwarezmid Empire, and within two years, that empire was wiped out. From there, the Mongols just kept it moving. The Khwarezmid Empire was in what we would call Central Asia at this point, so the Mongols wiped out the Khwarezmian Empire in Central Asia. And from there, they headed north into southern Russia and conquered a whole bunch of land and killed a whole bunch of people up that way also. But while they were in Russia, they learned about some lands that were further east that weren't quite as cold and had lots of big cities and lots of fertile land. This was basically Persia that they were talking about in modern day Iran and Iraq. So the Mongols, they turned their forces around and swept down into Persia and began conquering and killing everything in sight. And that's not an exaggeration. Uh, that's kind of the way things happened. Eventually, they came across the Ismaili castles in Iran. The Mongol general was uh, Genghis Khan's grandson named Hulagu Khan. The Ismailis knew the Mongols were on their way. I mean... Their reputation preceded them, if I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, their reputation, the Mongols preceded them. So the Ismailis and pretty much everybody knew the Mongols were on their way. And they sent out some assassins to try to kill Hulagu Khan, the Mongol general, but none of them were successful. At this time, the Ismaili imam, the Ismaili imam was a man named Ruknuddin Khursha, who was the great great-grandson of Hassan II, the guy who started the whole resurrection thing. Ruknuddin was staying in another Ismaili castle called Maimundiz. Hulagu Khan, he sent a messenger ahead of his army, demanding Ruknuddin, the leader of the Ismailis, surrender the castle, and this began a long series of negotiations and counter-negotiations between Ruknuddin and Hulagu Khan. 
ultimately, what was really happening was Rudolf Dean was stalling for time and just, I don't know what he was hoping to accomplish, but he was pretty much just trying to trick Hulagu Khan. But after about a year of that stuff, Hulagu Khan was, he got tired of it and said, enough of this. He gave Rukundin an ultimatum. He said, surrender or it's war. Rukundin, he stalled for a few more weeks, but eventually he surrendered and ordered all of the other Ismaili castles in Persia to surrender as well. And most of the castles surrendered, including Castle Alamut. And whenever they surrendered, the Mongols would go about dismantling or destroying that castle. Alamut was so strong, it would probably still be around today. But thanks to the Mongols, all that's left are its ruins. Now, some of the Ismaili castles resisted the Mongols. They fought back, but they were eventually either overpowered by the Mongols or surrendered after some negotiations. Uh, before the Mongols destroyed Alamut, however, they, their historian, who was actually a Sunni Muslim scholar named Juvaini, he went through the library in the castle. Now, Remember, the, the Mongol historian, Juvaini, he's a Sunni Muslim, so he's not too fond of the Ismailis whatsoever. He goes to the library in Castle Alamut, picks out all the Qurans and some of the Ismaili books on mathematics and science and some other books he felt were in line with uh, Sunni Islamic thought. But all the rest of them, he had them burned. All the rest of the books at Castle Alamut in the Ismaili library were burned. Rukhnuddin, the Ismaili imam, he was taken prisoner by Hulagu Khan, but he was immediately killed. Hulagu Khan, um, he did kill thousands of other Ismaili prisoners, but he didn't really want to kill Rukhnuddin himself. See, the Mongols, they always had this thing um, against spilling royal blood, so they would often hesitate to kill the the king or the ruler of a certain nation. So they left Rukhnuddin alone for a while. They actually treated him pretty nice and they treated him pretty well. There's some stories that he got engaged and married to a Mongolian girl. And that's when Rukhnuddin started to get a little bit too full of himself. I guess he got used to being around the Mongols. They're keeping him alive for a while. And he started thinking that he's one of them. And I don't know what was going through his head. But for some reason, he demanded to meet with the great Khan back in Mongolia, the, the, Khan, the Khan of the Khans. The, it wasn't Genghis Khan because he had died by now, but he wanted, to rule, he wanted to meet with the ruler of the Mongols. At first, Hulagu Khan, he ignored him for a while. Hulagu Khan is still a general. He ignored Rukhnuddin, but eventually sent him along uh, with a bunch of Mongol warriors back to Mongolia to meet with the great Khan. By this time, the Mongols had conquered or were in the process of conquering most of the Ismaili territory in Iran. Whatever happened in their meeting, the great Khan didn't seem to be really impressed with Rukhnuddin. Um, they didn't really need him anymore. The Ismailis had pretty much surrendered. So he sent him back and sent him back to Persia and had him killed along the way. After Rukhnuddin was killed, the Mongols back in Iran killed about 12,000 Ismaili prisoners. And that was pretty much it for the Ismailis in Iran. Of course, many Ismailis did escape the Mongol onslaught, but as an independent state, their time was over. At first, the, the Sunni Muslims were like really happy about the Ismaili defeat, 
but their happiness was short-lived. It didn't last too long. The Mongols kept marching westward through Iran and into Iraq, and all of the little offshoots of the Seljuk Empire were wiped up or swallowed up by the Mongols. And then the Mongols came to the center of Muslim political power, the seat of the caliphate in Baghdad. The Mongols approached Baghdad and they demanded the caliph surrender. The caliph, for some reason, thought Baghdad couldn't be conquered and so he refused to surrender. So the Mongols then set up siege and they besieged Baghdad for 12 days and it fell on the 12th day. And this kicked off the most destructive, in terms of actual body count, the most destructive moment in Muslim history. And it still resonates even today. The Mongols sacked Baghdad and killed almost every single Muslim in the city. Here are some quotes about the destruction. Quote, They swept through the city like hungry falcons attacking a flight of doves, or like raging wolves attacking sheep with loose reins and shameless faces, murdering and spreading terror. Beds and cushions made of gold and encrusted with jewels were cut to pieces with knives and torn to shreds. Those hiding behind the veils of the great harem were dragged through the streets and alleys, each of them becoming a plaything as the population died at the hands of the invaders. Unquote. The second one comes from an Islamic website called Lost Islamic History. Quote, a full week of pillage and destruction commenced. The Mongols showed no discretion, destroying mosques, hospitals, libraries, and palaces. The books from Baghdad's libraries were thrown into the Tigris River in such quantities that the river ran black with the ink from the books. The world will never truly know the extent of what knowledge was lost forever when these books were thrown into the river or burned. More important than the books, however, was the loss of life. It is estimated that between 200,000 and 1 million people were butchered in that one week of destruction. Baghdad was left completely depopulated and uninhabitable. It would take centuries for Baghdad to regain any sort of prominence as an important city. Unquote. The caliph himself would also be killed. But remember, we said earlier how the Mongols didn't like spilling royal blood. So to get around this, they had him rolled up in a carpet and trampled to death by horses. After Baghdad, the Mongols would continue west and just sweep through the Middle East, only finally being stopped at the gates of Palestine by the Mamluks at the famous Battle of Ainul Jalut. The Ismailis in Syria were also defeated by the Mongol hordes, but it wasn't nearly as destructive as what happened in Iraq and Iran. Uh, besides, by this time, the Mongols were starting to, to stretch too far beyond the capital. Genghis Khan had died and his children and grandchildren were more interested in enjoying their riches and their territories rather than conquering more land. Also, the Mamluks actually pushed them out of Syria as well, and that was the extent of of the Mongol invasion in the Muslim world. Now, despite the destruction caused by the Mongols, the Ismailis did continue to live and thrive in Iran, though not in the same way as they had before. With the onslaught of the Mongols, the Ismaili presence in Iran really dwindled down to insignificant numbers, and they never really controlled any territory in Iran after that. <laughs> 